the Son of God. We're going to look at those verses today, uh, as well as many others. Uh, but let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would bless us today as we study your word and as we look at this idea of eternal security. I pray that you would bless our time together as we study this. I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the words you would have me to say. And Father, I pray that you would fill each person here with your Holy Spirit, that they would hear from you and not me. I pray that you guide and direct us throughout the day. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Well, essentially, there are five categories of people in the world today. The first one is those who are unsaved and they know it. Uh, they have no security regarding their eternal future. Uh, the second group is those who are unsaved, but they think that they're saved. Uh, they have a false security about their eternity. The third group is those who are saved, but are uncertain about whether they are saved. They are insecure. The fourth group is those who believe uh, they were saved in the past or even present, but who are unsure about their salvation in eternity. And they have a feeling of security in the here and now, but they're not really eternally secure. They're curious about the hereafter. And number five, those who are certain that they are, have been saved and are saved and will be saved forever. Uh, they are the ones who truly are eternally secure in their salvation experience. My prayer is that at the end of this series that we will find ourselves, all of us will find ourselves in this last category. Amen? And the opposite belief regarding eternal security is one generally called falling from grace. Uh, according to this position, a person can lose his or her salvation through sin or a wayward living after being saved. Uh, it's not up to me to convince you one way or the other. Uh, we must ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the truth through God's Word. I'm going to preach what the Word of God says, and I hope that you'll understand it and be able to have that security for yourself. And most Christians do not truly study this topic out. They just cling to whatever position they were taught as a young Christian <coughs> and just stick to it. They don't ever really study it out. <clears throat> Many people associate the topic of eternal security with the doctrine uh, position of once saved, always saved, and that's true. Uh, in turn, they associate this doctrine with a Baptist doctrine rather than a biblical one, but it's a biblical doctrine. Uh, Baptists have typically, and uh, their stance has typically been to go back to the Bible, the fundamentals of the Bible. In fact, that's why a lot of us call ourselves fundamental Baptists, because we go back to the fundamentals of the Word of God to, for our beliefs and our theology. And, but I'd like this uh, uh, to be a Bible study, not a doctrinal study. This isn't what Baptists believe. This is what the Word of God says. Amen? And many have said that uh, through the years, uh, condemnation before investigation leads to error. Amen? Condemnation before investigation leads to error. And this goes for both sides of the argument. And uh, don't uh, take it just as truth because I say it. Study the Word of God for yourself and see it for yourself. Today I want to look at what, uh, why does it matter? What's at stake today? If why do we need to study this idea of eternal security? Well, I believe that there are several things that are at stake here. Uh, let's go right into it. For number one, what is at stake? Assurance. Assurance. Knowing that I'm saved is at stake when it comes to eternal security. We're in danger if anything other than Christ's completed work on the cross is what determines our salvation. Uh, we at least are likely to get into trouble if we don't trust solely in that. 
It'll be hard to live with much security in your life if you and I are responsible for keeping our own salvation. Amen? If we're responsible for keeping our salvation, not only, uh, there's no way that I could know for sure that if I died today that I'd go to heaven. It'll be hard to live with any kind of security. And yes, we may have hope, but what about certainty? No, you won't have it. And John, however, devoted a whole letter to reassuring a group of individuals, a group of Christians, people that he had not even been present to have seen himself that they were saved. 1 John 5.13 tells us that we read, verse we read a minute ago, These things have I written unto you. This is why I'm writing unto you, people. <laughs> These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He says that ye may know. That Greek word that means that ye may know. Do you know what that word means? It means you know. <laughs> Amen? That's what it means. It's a certainty, a 100% sure certainty. This is what John is writing the book of 1 John for. And there can be a, no peace in your heart if there is no certainty of God's acceptance. There can be no joy if there is no peace. One's capacity to love without condition is constrained when there's no joy. Why? Because someone who lacks assurance is inevitably driven in part by fear, not love. And love and fear do not get along well. And 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, or of but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God does not put fear into, in us. He gives us power and love and of a sound mind for us to be able to act upon. And one will always dilute the other. Worry always, also overflows from fear. And if we constantly are fearful, we're going to constantly live in a state of worry. If we're constantly living that way, how can we obey verses like Philippians 4, 6? If the question of my salvation is unresolved, verses that say, be careful, be worried for nothing, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. He says, I want you to live in certainty that you are mine, so that when you come to me, you know you're coming to your Father. And you can bring your requests with thanksgiving. Bring those requests to God. So assurance is at stake if we don't believe in eternal security. Number two, forgiveness is at stake if we don't believe in eternal security. The extent of the forgiveness of God is that question here. The extent of the forgiveness. Which of your sins did Christ die for when He died? When you put your faith in Him as your Savior, what sins were you absolved of? If the sins you commit after becoming a Christian have the power to destroy your relationship with your Savior, then it's obvious that Calvary did not pay for those sins. No, everything is covered by the blood of Christ. And making a distinction between sins that have been forgiven and ones that uh, ha have not is not scriptural. It doesn't matter when, you, when sins happen. From the perspective of the cross, they were all in the future. Amen? When God died for sin, He died for the sins of, the whole, of all the earth, of all mankind. And because God is not a part of created time, it doesn't affect God's forgiveness. No, it affects our relationship, how we have that relationship with Him, how we respond to each other. It doesn't affect the fact that we are His child. 
To ignore eternal security is to diminish the significance of what occurred at Calvary. 1 John, again, 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins. This is dealing with cleansing the relationship between us, but it deals nothing with our position, a child of God. He is faithful. Isaiah 43, verse 25 says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for, for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. This was a promise made by God. He, once they're forgiven, once they're blotted out, they will never be remembered again. Those transgressions have been blotted out. The word means wiped away. Why? He says, for my own sake. God says, for my sake, I will not remember them anymore. Oh, the love of God. Amen. Psalms 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath God removed our transgressions from us. You cannot travel east and all of a sudden start traveling west. There's no point where east meets west <laughs> if you keep traveling going east. There's no place. You can travel south and then I'll reach the south pole. The south pole. I'll point south. If you go south, and all of a sudden, if you cross the South Pole, you're going north all of a sudden, right? Anybody remember geography? Okay. I feel like I'm alone all of a sudden here, okay? Uh, respond a little bit, okay? Uh, so I know you're here. But uh, no, you go, if you keep going south, you're going to end up going north, aren't you? But if you keep traveling east, you'll always be going east. As far as the east is from the west, he says, so, has, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. We're forgiven. It's done. If we accepted Christ as our Savior and accepted His payment, we are forgiven. Now we have to deal with relational issues from time to time. We have to ask Him and confess our sins and admit, God, that was a sin. That, agree with God is what the word confess means. We have to agree with God. Lord, this was wrong. I sinned. And we have to seek His forgiveness. And He says He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We're going to be talking about these things in more detail as we go, but we'll get an overview right now. But the extent of our forgiveness is at stake if we don't give it to Him. Number three, the idea of faith alone, salvation by faith alone is at stake. It's a matter of salvation by faith. If there is no eternal security, salvation is no longer accomplished solely by faith. Rather, it's accomplished through both faith and works, keeping things right with Him. To imply that keeping my salvation is made possible by doing good or refra refraining from sin, it is to assume the responsibility of my salvation every day for myself. If this is true, then there would be a place for boasting in heaven. But there's not. The problem, cannot be uh, the problem can't be resolved by just claiming that God's grace permits us to continue in good deeds. No, because who's in charge of giving grace in the first place? God is. So it's still all of Him and all by faith, only trusting in Him and Him alone. No, all grace and all mercy, all of that comes from God. Even faith itself comes from God. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was on all points tempted like as we were, yet without sin. He says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and to help in time of need. Grace, the grace to be able to live this life comes from God. That's the only way we're going to be able to do it. 
And it's all based upon faith, believing what He has told us and going forward. God gives us the grace that we need for the moment to accomplish what we need to accomplish for Him, to do the right that we need to do, to stay away from the sin that He wants to stay away from. But all of this is by faith and faith alone. But if we have to maintain our salvation, if we have to keep it going, if we have to keep it up, if salvation is not forever, salvation can't be through by faith alone. We're involved here in our own salvation. Romans 8, 28 says that, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. All throughout Romans, Paul argues, We do not keep our salvation by keeping the law. It is by faith and faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 tells us, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If we had a part in it, we could boast. Verse 10, it says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Even the good works that we do after we're saved, even the things that we do that are done right, are done by the power of the Holy Spirit, that He is working in us to do what He wants to accomplish. We are His workmanship. We were created by Him, for Him, and He enables us to follow Him. And some might say, well, <clears throat> what about what J- James, the book of James says? They're talking about James chapter 2, verse 24 most of the time. He says, Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. And they point to that verse all the time and say, wait a minute, what about this? Look at verses 17 and 18 of that same chapter. He says, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. If you do a study of James, you begin to see that James is not talking about that you need to have works to keep your faith. He's saying that if you don't have works, you don't have faith. You understand what I'm saying? He's saying your faith is dead if you're not willing to work for God and you call yourself a Christian. If you're not willing to do right, don't tell me you have faith in the first place. That's what he's saying. But a verse taken out of context, they try to prove a standing by one verse alone. No, we have to take the whole of Scripture. All of Scripture has to be true if it's the Word of God. Who is the truth, by the way? The truth. We have to take all of what he has said and put it together to be able to find the truth that God wants us to see. A person that has faith will do good works, period, which he has ordained us to walk in, by the way, in the verse that we read just a few minutes ago. All of Scripture has to be true, and our job is to rightly interpret all of Scripture in alignment for the, with the rest of Scripture. One verse cannot contradict another. So we have to do our due diligence to find out how it all fits together and works. And one verse in James does not erase the multitude of verses that tell us about our eternal security. The devil wants us to have turmoil about this and doubts. And when we're saved by faith and we know that we are eternally secure, we can have peace. Amen? Romans 5.1 tells us, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we are justified by faith, we're at peace with God. We are at peace with ourselves. We're at peace with each other. Okay, so faith alone is at stake here. 
when we talk about eternal security. It's either all of Him or it's all of us. There's no in-between. But I'll tell you, it's all of Him. Look at number four. What else is at stake? Love. If abandoning the faith or falling into sin short-circuits salvation, then I have the ability to demonstrate unconditional love to a greater extent than God does. And that's not possible. If there is a condition, even one, attached to God's willingness to maintain a relationship with His children, it is not unconditional. If there's one condition, it's not unconditional. But on the other hand, I know many people who have demonstrated pure, unconditional love to a family members who were incredibly undeserving. John 4, 8 tells us, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. God is love. How can we be do better at loving than God can? Amen? If we have one condition that we have to follow in order for God to love us, it is not unconditional love. And that is contrary to what Scripture tells us. One might argue, but God's holiness demands certain things of those who He maintains a relationship with. His nature will not allow Him to stay in a relationship with an individual who continually spurns His love. I understand the human logic here, but that's beside the point. (laughs) We cannot put our own logic into what the Bible says in order to create a doctrine. That's where heresy starts to form. It is, is the sin covered? Is it forgiven or is it not? Psalms 106 one says, Praise ye the Lord. O give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. For His mercy endureth forever. Either His mercy endures forever, or it's temporary and conditional. It's one or the other. If His holiness demands something in return for those He loves, it's clear that His holiness makes God incapable of of unconditional love. And we know that that's not true. If holiness is is a condition, then His love is not unconditional. If His nature forces Him to disassociate with certain types of people with whom He has reconciled, His nature stands in the way of His ability to love unconditionally. You know, there's not anything in this world that my kids could do that would keep me from loving them. Nothing. The kind of relationship I have with them may change based upon what they do, but they will always have my love and my help. It's not about relationship, it's about fellowship. Amen? If my children choose to rebel against me and choose to disobey me, the fellowship that we once enjoyed is no longer there. It's broken until it's repaired. The fellowship may be broken, but they'll always be my child. The relationship is there. Amen. Matthew 7, 11 tells us, if, we, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask Him? He says, if you as a wicked, sinful, human, faulty father or mother can love your children that much, how much more can a perfect father love his children? 
God knew we were sinners. He knew every sin that we would commit before we were even born. He's all-knowing. He knew every sin you would commit before is ever born. How can we think that he says uh, uh, to us, he saves us one moment and then says, oh, I, I didn't realize you were going to do that. I'm sorry, but you're no longer saved. <laughs> Either he's all-knowing or he's not, amen? Romans 5, 8 tells us, but God commendeth or showed his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He knew who you were. He knew how you would fail Him. He knew every sin you would commit. He knew the sin you'll commit this afternoon. And yet He chose to love you and to forgive you and to cleanse you from that unrighteousness. Now, if we do something to this afternoon, do we have fellowship with Him? No. It's hard to go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for something when we know we just did something that we shouldn't do that broke what He wants for our life. It's hard to say, Lord, I, I need help paying this bill whenever we realize we just said something or did something or thought something. No, He says, you need to repair the relationship. If you confess your sins, though, I will be faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. I, often, I, I worked for a plumber while I was in California. I was a bookkeeper. I didn't really do the plumbing, but I learned a lot about plumbing by working in the office. And one of the main, big things that we did was cleaning out sewer systems and doing a rotor router type thing through the sewer system. And I went and did a couple of those myself, and boy, I did not want to do that anymore. But uh, there are times whenever things block the channel, friend, and stuff is supposed to leave the house, right? And never see it again. Amen? But there are times whenever something blocks the way between where it was and where it's supposed to be. Amen? We want to have that way clear. Nothing between the Lord and me. If I want to hear from God, if I want God's help in this life, if I want God's grace, we need to confess our sins. Why? Because so we can get saved again? No. So we can have good fellowship with Him. So we can have the help that we need to live this life. This is why He provided a way to have fellowship in the first place. He wanted to help us. He wanted to get, lift us out of the miry clay and set us on our feet and walk with us and help us all along the way. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's how much He loved us. He gave His own Son that our relationship would be right. Number five, what else is, is in the, at risk here? Number five, evangelism. Sharing the love of God with others is challenging for Christians who are unsure about their relationship with God. It's not easy to share your relationship. It'll come up here in just a minute. It's not easy to share whenever you're not sure about your own standing before God. They frequently can't move past their own wrestling with salvation. Not everyone who disputes the idea of once saved, always saved has this issue, but I've come across many people for whom this barrier really exists. And Charles Stanley told of a gentleman, Robert, who was a good example of this. He was consumed with a question of eternal security. Every time Dr. Stanley spoke with Robert, he somehow turned the conversation in that direction. He would see 
and coming, and he'd be t- uh, Dr. Stanley would be tempted to run away and be busy himself with something else so he wouldn't have to talk about it once again. It was always the same thing. Dr. Stanley, what about this verse? And Dr. Stanley said he was a tragic illustration of something he saw quite often. A person who becomes so absorbed with one issue that their life gets out of balance, their focus gets out of balance. One of the major areas is evangelism. You get so focused on yourself, you're not busy sharing the truth of God with others. For some reason, eternal security seems to be one of those unbalancing issues. It's interesting as well as sad to see how often a person's evangelistic zeal suffer when this happens. When someone is consumed with this struggle over their own salvation, they'll never share the salvation with someone else. Why would they want to share what they already struggle with? But when a person has peace with God, the joy that comes with knowing it is settled, it's done, it's not dependent upon them, they're eager to share the gospel, amen? Number six. The sixth thing that's at, at risk here is your focus. Your focus. As long as I have an ongoing role in my salvation process, my natural tendency will be to focus on my behavior rather than Christ. We're, yet we're commanded to make Christ our focus. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, keep your eyes on Jesus. It's hard to do that whenever we're constantly struggling with whether or not we're saved or we're going to stay saved. We're told to keep our focus on that which is good in life. Philippians 4.8 tells us, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, lovely, of a good report, of there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Self-reflection has, no doubt, a place in the Christian life, amen? But we shouldn't let self dominate our life in any way. Until we are certain that we are in our relationship with Him is solid, we're never going to be fully free to fix our attention on Him. I remember water skiing when I was a kid. I, I don't even know, remember where I was or when I did it, but I remember skiing. <laughs> I have no idea when it took place. Maybe a family reunion or something. I don't know. But I remember doing it. And I remember one thing. I didn't enjoy it. Because I was so focused on keeping my feet underneath me. <laughs> And I, I, didn't, I didn't take time to enjoy what was going on because I was so focused on keeping this underneath me. I went again water skiing when I was in high school at school camp. And I decided when I went into it, remembering the last experience, I decided I'm going to, I know what to expect now. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to focus on what's going on around me. And it was a totally different world, amen? Totally different experience. Because I wasn't focused on keeping my feet underneath me. I was able to just enjoy the scenery and the beauty and the wind in my hair. I had hair back then. A person's ability to maintain order in his life decreases as he concentrates more on himself. On the other side, it gets simpler to give Christ control over every aspect of our life the more the person concentrates on Christ. Amen. I thought about having a pan of water in here. 
I remember it was Lord's Supper, so it was difficult to do, but I was going to have a full pan of water, like a baking pan, you know. I was going to ask one of the teenagers to come up and carry it from point A to point B for me. Have you ever done that? You ever tried to cook something and had to put it in a water bath or whatever, and you're trying to carry it to the stove or maybe refrigerate with Jello or something like that, and you're desperately trying not to spill over? I learned one day the, 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 what makes the difference. It was on TV one time. And they said they were carrying a pan to the, uh, to the stove, and they said, when you do this, make sure you look at the goal, not the pan. If you'll keep your eye on the oven, you'll not spill a drop. But if you focus on what you're doing and it's not spilling, you get nervous, and you start shaking, and you end up spilling. Boy, what a picture of life, Amen. Keep your eyes on Christ, your goal, and life will take care of itself, amen? Will we have struggles? Will we have difficulty? Yes, we will, but we'll be able to handle them. Legalism tends to draw in those who are continually assessing their spiritual situation. They have to follow rules in order to keep their salvation, even if they don't say it that way. And legalism usually has two sidekicks, self-importance, and self-deception. And in other words, naming offenses by a different name to alleviate your own guilt. <laughs> well, that wasn't a lie. It was just, I misspoke. Things like that. People who struggle with legalism tend to deceive them or their own selves. And these work together to produce a life exactly the reversal of what Christ intended us to live. And these are just a few things affected by one's stance on the question of eternal security. I believe there are probably more. And this subject is not something for theologians to bat around among themselves and then decide to tell us what to believe. Right now, this matter greatly affects how you live your life. And you need to settle it once and for all right now and throughout this series. Whichever point of view you lean towards, it will significantly affect how you see God how you see yourself, and how you see other people. But as we go through this study, we'll see more clearly why I believe the Bible clearly teaches that we are eternally secure. Our salvation is based upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. Today we take the Lord's table. We remember the sacrifice that He made so that we can be free. Do not allow yourself to go once again under the bondage of always worrying about your salvation. Settle it once and for all. Do you know 100% sure that if you died today, that you would go to heaven? If not, come talk to me right now during the invitation. Don't worry about what people think. Take care of it right now. Say, well, I don't want to come in front of air. Okay, talk to me after the service. Make an appointment if you need to, but settle it right now. And never doubt again. It's all of Him. It's none of us. Let's sing together a song of invitation. Page number 319. As the instrumentalist.